So tonight I want to speak about the second foundation of mindfulness that the Buddha spoke of in the Satipatthana Sutta, this quality of mind, heart, called Vedana in the Pali, uh, what we're calling feeling tone in English, which we mentioned a couple of days ago in the instructions. Um, We use feeling tone rather than feeling because feeling is kind of a more global expression in English. You know, we use it to talk about moods, emotions, or feelings, sensations in the body. So I'm going to use feeling tone for Vedana to be quite specific. That's what I'm speaking about. <clears throat> so just to start with thinking about why did the Buddha give this such fleeting, such a subtle and quick mental experience, why did he emphasize it? so much that out of the whole realm of our human experience to be mindful of when he divided our whole experience into four things, he picked one of those four things as Vedana. So he's really kind of emphasizing the uh, importance to us to, to notice it, to bring mindfulness to this experience, to this quality. And remembering that everything, as far as we can tell, as far as I can tell, that everything the Buddha chose to share was really from the motivation of if you can uh, explore this, if you can see and understand how this works in your own experience, this is a key to really releasing the suffering that's arising moment to moment in mind-heart through ignorance, through not understanding really at the key of the ehipasiko, that phrase that's often used where the Buddha says, you too, come and see. It was never like, this is what you need to know, memorize it, write it down. Well, they did memorize it, but that's because they couldn't write it down. But memorize it, get to know it, pass a test, have debates. You know, now it's like, look, you too, come and see, explore. So I want to invite us tonight to explore Vedana in our experience using really as my text one of the discourses, the suttas of the Buddha. So just from what I can see, in choosing this subtle quality, this pleasant, unpleasant, neutral quality, because it's right at the heart of the moment-to-moment arising of suffering and confusion in our minds when we're not aware of it. And sometimes it can seem, even to me, who I'm totally devoted to this practice, but there's times on retreat when we're really uh, looking inward and getting so, I mean, at times really fascinated by these subtle movements of our heart and mind, you know, talking about these subtle little things. And sometimes it's fascinating and sometimes it's like, what's this got to do with anything? The world's going up in flames and we're sitting here looking at, look at this soul, you know, movement of unpleasant and pleasant, you know. But the thing is, what we have to study is this body and mind. And it's these subtle movements that lead to how we speak and act in the world. And we're like the laboratory for everybody else, you know? We're the laboratory of how human beings work. From Mahagosananda, who was a wonderful Cambodian monk um, 
who was really a very uh, great uh, peace advocate after the Khmer Rouge took over and he really went to all the, um, the refugee camps with all the Cambodian refugees. His whole family was killed in the uh, Khmer Rouge time. And he would go and just really bring Buddhism back to the camps and really get everyone together and chanting the metta chant and really bringing metta in in the midst. And so, so really very powerful. And then once the Khmer Rouge were gone, he would lead um, peace marches back through Cambodia when it was still quite dangerous. And he was, he was a great peace activist and monk. Anyway, one thing he said in a speech once, all the landmines in the world have been planted by the landmines in our own hearts. So to understand and thus remove the landmines in our hearts is the way to remove them in the world. And I would say the bottom line, the landmines in our hearts, in my heart, arise from the unseen habit of greed, of hatred or aversion or fear, of delusion in the mind when that's unseen and it leads to intention, it leads to action, as Winnie was talking about this morning. That's why intention is so key. So here, learning to or continuing to explore Vedana, to recognize, to just get interested in seeing how it arises and how it works is a wonderful way really a key way to start to both understand how these so-called landmines arise out of habit in our heart and how with steady mindful awareness that gives rise to wisdom, they can so much be removed as the tendency for them to arise starts to be abandoned with wisdom. So that's really how I see the importance of this. So... So this sutta, this discourse of the Buddha, is called the dart. Dart is like an arrow. So I'll read pieces of it and then give my impressions <laughs> and then some more. So, an untaught worldling, we've had that before, obikus, experiences pleasant feeling, feeling tone, vedana. He, he or she experiences unpleasant vedana and experiences neutral Vedana. A well-taught noble disciple, in other words, a regular unenlightened person and an enlightened person, likewise experiences pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. So, and this question is like kind of the key to the sutta, makes it interesting. So what is the distinction, what's the difference that exists between a well-taught noble disciple and an untaught worldling? Essentially, he's saying, Everyone experiences pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings. So what's the difference between an awakened being and a regular schmoo you know, going through the world like us? Or maybe not you, but... So I think that's a pretty... I mean, that question gets me interested. I'm interested to see then what he has to say is the difference. So first, just describing Vedana, which I did a little bit. I'll just remind us. Vedana being... As he says, a sudden solace, subtle feeling tone in every moment of conscious sense door experience. So as I think has been said, maybe by several of us, 
all that is ever occurring, that we can be aware of, is any of the six sense experiences, right? All day long, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, physical sensations, mental realm, thinking, images, moods, emotions, uh, mental states. That's all that's happening. It's on and on and on and on and on and on. And happening really quickly. So we're not always aware of each thing, of course, but it's happening, right? And so what the Buddha is saying is each moment, and a moment is really, really, really quick. I mean, 17 trillion mind moments in the blink of an eye, quick. No way we're going to see them all. Each sense contact like that, the mind receives it in some way with this taste, this flavor. Pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So this has been happening, you know, all day, all night, all our life. And as I think I said the other morning, it's amazing to me, how did he figure this out? How did he like notice this? Because it happened so quickly. And as I think I said, I would never have picked it up if it hadn't been pointed out. This is a place where right view can arise from the voice of another. You know, if I hadn't read or heard this, I wouldn't have just been looking there, noticing my thought and go, oh, I see the pleasantness leads me to wanting. Ah, how interesting. That's the key to suffering and freedom from suffering. I don't think I would really have noticed that without it being pointed out like 10 million times, okay? So, but this is going on all day long, all day long. And because we mostly don't notice it, it's so fast. It's so the feeling tone itself is a very subtle mental experience like that, you know? The tendency this is no surprise to you, I'm sure, is that, you know, we kind of lean into the pleasant, the unpleasant, don't want to be there, the neutral, we don't notice. And this just feels so obvious and normal. It's not something we even notice or question, but this comes to be so, it's like just so culturally acclimated that of course we think, of course I like the pleasant. Of course I dislike the unpleasant. Neutral, it's okay, I guess. I don't know, you know, what the heck. I never really paid much attention to that. And it becomes so, so conditioned that really it, the sense of, you know, liking gets mixed in. As soon as you say pleasant, you think it's liking. Unpleasant already in many of our minds, aversion is in there. But it, be, it comes to be, um, at least I've noticed it over and over, in a subtle or sometimes not so subtle way, the way that the mind, our minds, tends to value or evaluate our experience. Good, right, how things are supposed to be, usually on the pleasant realm, right? And when it's unpleasant or going into difficulty, it's gone there so quickly, we don't notice the unpleasant. We think, well, this is wrong. This isn't how things should be. The whole, the whole view of world and what we're trying to do and what makes things right or good is based on pleasant and avoiding unpleasant. And as I said, ehi pasiko, don't believe me. You keep exploring in your experience as we go through this time. So that's just to begin with, that's all I want to say, and then go back to the sutta. But this is kind of so rooted in habit, 
Because remember, how often has the mind practiced this? How many sense door contacts has there been today? How old are you? How many (laughs) days have you lived through with sense door contacts every mind moment? And how many times have we not noticed this? So it's really in there that the way it's supposed to go is towards the pleasant, right? Okay, so back to the sutta. So when an untaught worldling, (laughs) I have trouble saying that, is touched by an unpleasant bodily feeling, but I would say it could be any of the sense doors, an unpleasant feeling, he or she worries and grieves, he laments, he beats his breast, he weeps and is distraught. He thus experiences two kinds of unpleasant feeling, a bodily and a mental one. It is as if a person were pierced by an arrow and following the first piercing, he is hit by a second arrow. Utejaniya calls this double dukkha. <laughs> so that person will experience feelings, unpleasant feelings caused by two arrows. It is similar with an untaught whirling. When touched by a painful, unpleasant feeling, he worries and grieves, laments, beats his breast, weeps, and is distraught. So he experiences two kinds of unpleasant feeling, bodily and mental. Can you relate to that, or does it seem really abstract? But you see, this is the place, this is the place where it goes so quickly, unpleasant, and it expl- un- unrecognized unpleasant. It's not, as he said, it explodes into story. It explodes into reaction and reactivity. You can pick this up from the Buddha. He didn't say, oh, he kind of goes, oh, I don't really like that unpleasant feeling. He's weeping. He's distraught. He's beating his breast. He's really having a little bit of a reaction going on here. That's what the Buddha is saying. So can you relate? I mean, that's what we do. And we don't even notice the subtlety of unpleasant into aversion. We're totally, this is the unmindful we. The mind can get just so really entranced by the reactions. That comes to be the description of what's really going on without mindfulness. I mean, obvious, simple examples you all know. Take an unpleasant, painful feeling in the body when you're sitting. Not even a really killer one. Just a little one, you know? But like we always say, as soon as you notice, oh no, unpleasant and exploding into reactivity. How am I going to stand the rest of this retreat? How am I going to stand the rest of this sitting? And how many more days are there? And you want to, you know, you start going through your calendar. I wish I didn't give up my phone because I could go back and really count exactly how many days are left and how many more sittings and how impossible it's going to be to get through this, you know, and wherever it goes. And at some point, we might realize, okay, this might be papancha. I think Sally talked about that the other night. But we're not really, then we go, well, I shouldn't be doing this. This is bad, you know, and it's more unpleasant feeling. We're not even just, what actually happened here? What actually happened? Unpleasant, immediately moving away, immediately. It's unbearable. Beating our breasts, tearing out our hair, weeping and distraught, hitting ourselves with a second arrow. And we, you know, we think this is kind of normal. I mean, it is kind of normal, unfortunately. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> it's normal. So it explodes into reactivity, and we get really kind of sucked into 
the story really kind of sucked into what's going on and it reinforces our view that we may not realize of the world that better and better means more and more pleasant. I mean, when you think about being uh, an enlightened, noble disciple, do you think about still having that backache when you sit? Do you think about, you know, still having to deal with your grumpy family? Do you think about, you know, things like your stomach doesn't digest the food well and people don't act appropriately and you still get sick and you still have unpleasant mental states going on? You know, we don't really think it through. We think, oh yeah, just, it gets nicer and nicer, nicer and nicer until we're all floating on a cloud. But we all have pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And this is really to invite us to look and see. Okay, I want to go back and then talk some more about this. So he's going on, you have the unpleasant bodily and mental feeling. Having been touched by that unpleasant feeling, both of them, the person resists and resents the unpleasant feeling. So then in one who so resists and resents the unpleasant feeling, the underlying tendency, in other words, the habit of resistance against unpleasant feeling comes to underlie the mind. This is where these habits of the kalashas are getting created moment by moment by moment. That habit of as soon as there's unpleasant, we resist it. And the resistance is just that, no, this shouldn't be happening. You know, it doesn't have to be all the way to beating our breasts. Just, no, this shouldn't be happening. And that comes to be the habit. So I'll read a a bit and then go back and talk about it. Under the impact of that habit of resisting the painful feeling, he then proceeds to enjoy sense happiness. And why does he do this? An untaught worldling, O bhikkhus, does not know of any other escape from unpleasant, painful feelings except the enjoyment of sensual happiness. I really think that's one of the keys to this whole thing. So then in one who enjoys sensual happiness in this way, an underlying tendency to lust, to crave for pleasant feelings comes to underlie the mind. In other words, that becomes a habit. He does not know, according to facts, the arising and ending of these feelings, nor the gratification, the danger, and the escape connected with these feelings. I'll come back and, and talk, read a bit more about that, but I want to talk a minute. So I think this is really, really kind of the key part of the sutta to really get interested in exploring because he's laying out so clearly how these habits of aversion or hatred and greed for sense pleasure come to underlie our mind come to be a habit and we can really with mindfulness explore that happening not just hate it but explore it happening and really see so it really uh, reinforces how does that work as i said it reinforces the worldview of not recognizing the first noble truth so just kind of check you notice how you evaluate yourself how we subtly evaluate others how you're evaluating your practice, which we try not to do, but do on an endless basis, how much of that is by pleasantness or unpleasantness? 
It's like so kind of ingrained. I keep finding it's kind of sneaking up through the back door. You know, I think I'm just really present with things as they are. It's all fine. You can feel the ease of that. And then suddenly it's like, oh, no, it should go a little bit in that direction because that's the way it's supposed to go. 99 million times out of 100 million, that way it's supposed to go is going to be pleasant. You know, because that's just what we're geared to look at. So what this does, this underlying habits of resistance to the unpleasant, leading to, leaning into, lusting for, craving any kind of pleasant experience, because that's the only way out we know. That's so sad to me. But see, that's really what um, I would describe as the workings of the samsara. The sense of this endless leaning forward into the next thing, the endless search for gratification. I mean, we can see it in the, in the big picture. It's not hard to notice, you know, when we're out in the world and things are a little unpleasant and you go to the refrigerator or you call up a friend or you get in the car or you buy a new something or you do whatever to, to feel something pleasant, just to move away from the unpleasant. Not saying that any of those things are bad. It's not about that. It's really about noticing the process. But this, this habit keeps us always you know, leaning a little bit to gratification, a little bit out of this sense of insufficiency. Whatever's here right now just isn't quite enough. This next one will do it. This next one will do it. And it's not quite so clear in our minds that, you know, we just get into the habit of moving towards the next pleasant thing, the next pleasant thing. We don't see the danger, which I'll talk about in a minute. And so one thing it does is keep us focused on each object, each experience as, you know, good or bad or the thing to get away from or the thing that's going to do it. And when it inevitably dissolves or changes or the gratification, maybe it did gratify us. It just doesn't last more than a fraction. When it inevitably changes, then the focus is on the next object, the next object, and never seeing the process. And this is the endlessness of the dissatisfaction, the leaning forward of samsara. What Sally gave that Tibetan um, definition of samsara, the urge to correct. You know, it could always be just a little bit better. Never quite good enough. So in focusing on the object, the experience, this one or the next one, always then there's a sense of me and object and the world is narrowed down to that. We don't notice the vastness, the sense of nature, the, the, the non-separateness of it all. It's me needing to get that. And each experience, this is to me why life can seem so exhausting. Each experience is like, so this is the one that's going to do it, or this is the one that's making me miserable, and we're just completely taken by each experience, up and down and all around, and it's just, oh my God, how do we get through the day? For, so the example I use that's kind of in my mind the last two or three years, it's an image that really works for me, plus it makes me laugh. So clearly it's not about me, because <laughs> it's easier to laugh when it's not too close. But... Um, 
about how the, how we up and down and so quick and each one is so real and we don't notice that because we're in that constant leaning forward of resistance and going after the pleasure pleasure is um it's a sports example from i don't know 2 or 3 years ago when the uh, the super bowl which is american football for those of you who aren't american what year was that a couple years ago when when the uh, patriots the new england team were in the super bowl it was a couple of years ago. I'm not a... John knows, right? <laughs> and the Seahawks, thank you, from Seattle. So I didn't watch it, I mean. <laughs> I'm not actually... I could care from football. But my friends, I think Guy was telling me, the last two minutes were really amazing, and it, they recorded it, so I should watch it. So how to, how to not go into the whole football thing? Anyway, the last two minutes, and I'm not going to get it right, so football fans... Don't hold me to being accurate with how these things work. I'm just making a point about samsara, okay? I'm not trying to, <laughs> not trying to get football right. <laughs> uh, anyway, it was like the last two minutes, and so the New England quarterback, a big star, Tom Brady, had done his job on the, when, you know, and they were ahead, New England was ahead. Two minutes left, he was sitting on the sidelines. The defense team, and whatever happened, they were about, the Patriots were about to lose, right? It was two minutes, the other team had the, had the ball, I guess, almost right on the goal line. It was like no way that, the, that they wouldn't score and the Patriots would lose. And so Brady's sitting over there on the sideline, nothing he could do, and the camera panned to him, and he was a picture of total dejection, total, his head was in his hands, and he's like total, total dejection. And so then it goes back, you know, I was watching the, the field and a totally bizarre thing happened, which I'm not going to get right, but it was intercepted and somehow they ended up winning. A totally weird fluke, right? Pans to Brady again. He's leaping all over the place. He's like so happy, right? <laughs> they won. I thought, so someone said to me, why shouldn't he be upset? Why shouldn't he be happy? Like, sure, he's upset. He's happy. That's life. But it's the thing. It's like it's so everything. That upset was totally, that's what's going to make him miserable forever. Then he was so happy, he won the Super Bowl, he's going to be happy forever. How long was he happy? There was some whole big, you know, thing about they were deflating the balls. <laughs> Actually, now he's not even allowed to play for fourth, you know, it doesn't last, nothing lasts. This is life, up and down, up and down. It keeps changing all the time. And when we're looking to the object, to the experience, we wonder why. Why is it so exhausting? Why are we never really fulfilled for more than a second? Because nothing can do it. That's the danger. But it's nice to watch. (laughs) We can watch it on retreat in little ways. I came up here and all these people are out looking at the sunset. It's really pretty. You're probably not looking for your life's fulfillment in the sunset. Probably, I hope not. I don't know. Yogi mind can get out there. But you're just looking at it. It's just nice. Nice. That's it. Are you noticing the pleasant? Or you notice where it goes into? Wow, the sun's up. But last night's was even better. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Someone just said that to me. We were saying beautiful sun because yeah, the well, last night's was really better. <laughs> then we hope maybe tomorrow night. You know? <laughs> That's it. Right there. That's the movement in the samsara. Being on retreat's great. We can watch it. In the little things, it's the same way it works in the big things. So why would we want to look this closely? 
when we look, when we really bring into our attention to look, what we find, you know, we kind of often like the juice. While we like the juice of being all excited and leaping around because we won the Super Bowl, we don't really like the juice of being totally demoralized and depressed and whatever. But there's a way we get hooked in and the steady, steady awareness that lets us see what's really going on is sometimes to the unenlightened worldling's mind, projection, not so attractive. Ajahn Sumedho <laughs> saying, it's funny, he's in one, as a talk I was listening to from a while ago, and sometimes he's, he's just like, this is how it is. And he's talking about just opening to the real in any moment. He goes, the real is not what you're expecting, I tell you. He says, it's not all happy, safe, and secure. Life is fair and unfair. There's pleasure and pain. He said, the conditions arise and cease, arising and ceasing like the breath going in and out. There's pleasant, there's unpleasant. This doesn't go away. There's nothing that has any intrinsic substance to it. And so when we really look, you know, when we, can, we can practice without realizing this and turn our whole practice into still subtly searching for the pleasant thing that's going to do it for us. It turns into an idea of some meditative state or an idea of what Nibbana would be. I mean, an idea, not the reality, that always will have a tinge of it's going to do it for me now. Instead of seeing pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, just really bring in the steady mindfulness and see how this is. When we really see steadily some of the entrancement with the object, with this experience, with the leaning and thinking it's going to do it, goes away which I experience as really ease and peace. The idea of it to the mind that hasn't experienced that is like, oh, God, who wants that? Again, I'll take another sports example. Sports are good because so many people get involved. Anyway, I happen to like to watch tennis, uh, professional tennis. God knows why. I'm the most unathletic person you could imagine, but I love to watch it. And... The thing with watching sports, I see it with other people watching other sports too, there's this idea that it, you're doing it from choice to enjoy yourself, right? That's the idea. So if I'm watching tennis and I care at all who wins, if I pay attention to what's going on in my experience, it's like not that enjoyable that often. You know, every point that doesn't go the way of the person I want to win, it's, oh, oh, you know, it's unpleasant. And then it's like fear, and then it's worry. And then, oh, my God, I can do it. I'm all tense and suspense and everything. And then even if they do win, it's like, ah, it's really just more relief that the damn thing is over. <laughs> and then I feel pleasure, you know. But then, as with any sport, as soon as it's over, there's a day, and then the next tournament starts or whatever. There's no resting, you know. But then, if I really watch, I started saying, okay, I'm doing this to enjoy myself. Really, Carol? (laughs) There's something a little off. So I started just really paying attention what's going on in internally, externally, seeing. And as I said, I was telling this in Switzerland. It's actually when I said it, it's when I realized exactly that's what was happening. I hadn't realized it before. But so watching tennis, 
It's moments of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. You know, there's pleasant, there's one really skillful shot. It's like pleasant, it's so great. But then it keeps going. There's another shot. It's going back and forth, back and forth. Neutral, 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 neutral. Then there's another bad shot. Ah, unpleasant. And then it's just neutral, neutral, neutral. And then, ah, unpleasant. Then pleasant. Then neutral, neutral, neutral. And that's, you know, that goes on for hours. I was just fast-forwarding through a match. It was a five-hour match. These guys are playing, you know? And that's going on all that time. If you're really paying attention, it's like, what, 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 what am I doing this for? You know? But that's just like a little microcosm of life. Explore it and see. It's really, really kind of interesting. So, okay, back to the sutta. <laughs> I'm talking about, this is all talking about the sutta. Okay. So, remember, he said, um, in one who enjoys sensual happiness, the tendency to lust for pleasant, the tendency to resist unpleasant, doesn't know, according to facts, the arising and ending of these feelings, or the gratification, danger, and the escape connected with these feelings. In one who lacks that knowledge... Then the underlying tendency to ignorance as to neutral feelings also comes to be a habit. And so when such a person experiences a pleasant feeling, an unpleasant feeling, or a neutral feeling, he feels it as one fettered by it, as one chained by it, or another translation is as one who is joined to that feeling, can't escape from it. It's like a a, a chain, a trap. Such a one, O monks, is called an untaught worldling who is fettered by birth, by old age, by death, by sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. She is fettered, she is chained to suffering by this, I declare. It's a strong statement. You know, I'm giving examples that make us laugh, but he's saying, really, look at this. This habit chains us. To suffering. So to me, as I said when I read that, that statement that an untaught whirling doesn't know of any other escape from unpleasant feeling except to crave for pleasant, I, I feel that's so poignant. It makes me feel so, uh, I feel so sad really for all of us to, to, to be in that position. But then I feel enormous um, gratitude, a sense of being blessed that I, that all of us here, have had access, been exposed to a path that actually does offer another way, that there is an escape other than just looking for endless pleasant feeling. And the escape, as, as Semedo says, it's just not, not what you might think it is, but there is really an escape. So I just want to... Um, talk about that gratification danger and escape this is another sutta from the buddha before my enlightenment o bhikkhus while i was still a bodhisatta someone who is committed to complete awakening of a buddha but not there yet it occurred to me what is the gratification in the world what is the danger in the world what is the escape from the world. Then it occurred to me, whatever pleasure and joy there is in the world, this is the gratification. There is gratification. 
that the world is impermanent, bound up with dissatisfactoriness and subject to change, unreliable. This is the danger in the world. The removal, the abandoning of desire and lust for the world, this is the escape from the world. So I want to talk a bit about that. So first, I think, again, to point out that the Buddha says there is gratification. Often when people hear this about the danger of uh, everything being unreliable and the escape being the abandoning of desire for the world, it's often heard heard in a way of saying pleasant experience is to be shunned or pleasant experience is a problem or basically saying abandon the world altogether, you know, that are the, are people hear the Buddha say, sense desire is bad, whatever. We hear that as being pleasant experience is bad. He's not saying that. He's so um, practical. So really looking around and saying, there is gratification. There is beauty in the world, you know, and we enjoy it. We appreciate it. That is the gratification in the world. If there were no gratification, we wouldn't have desire for it. So not to deny that, but more to explore what that really is. The danger being, as he said, that whatever we put our reliance on, or just as I was talking about it, it vanishes in a moment. And even in terms of, he's talking here in terms of the Vedana, the feeling tone, that he said the people don't understand the gratification, danger, and escape in the feeling tone itself. So the gratification is just that little, little blip of pleasantness, <laughs> like that. And what we don't see, the danger, is how fleeting and insubstantial feeling tone is, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. It's just a blink of an eye. So like starting to notice, you know, the seeing of the sunset, pleasant. Each new seeing is pleasant. It's just a little, a little blip. When we really look at it, or even unpleasant, it's so quick. We think I'm building all the decisions of my life around having this pleasant feeling, which just vanishes in a moment. Look at it and see. Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was a, a very renowned Thai forest monk meditation master and scholar, died in the, at the end of the last century. Actually, um, several of us have spent time at his monastery in the, in the forest in Thailand. Um, he said once, really explore the fleeting nature of pleasant feeling and then look at Look at all the decisions you've made in your life and really see how many of them did you make guided by wanting to have more pleasant feeling? How many decisions did you make for pleasant feeling? And he said his guess was you'd find about 95% of the decisions we make, just kind of off the cuff. 
we don't really see the fleeting quality of these. We go right into the reactivity to the reaction and then we build our whole life about it. So the escape, the escape is the steady mindful awareness that just starts to explore what's really going on. The abandoning of desire and lust for the the pleasantness, for the things of the world, is not something that we do with aversion or fear or, okay, I'm not going to go to anything pleasant anymore because I'll just get into wanting, you know, I'm just going to go in a room and shut the door and live the rest of my life there, which doesn't work anyway, as you see, the mind and will just make up pleasant, pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant. You can't get away from it. You can't in a body and mind. Um, but when we start to see how it really works, the wisdom sees it, the craving stops making sense because you see it's only bringing more suffering, not less. But first I just want to say that the Buddha himself says it's not that we no longer appreciate the beautiful or the lovely. There's one place where he says, what is beautiful in the world remains so, but the wise one no longer strives after it. Two very different things. It's not like then everything's just all kind of gray, the same, ugly, you know. I don't care, I'm going to put a vase of flowers. I don't care, pick ragweed, pick dandelions, pick up that old piece of grass or this beautiful rose. I can't tell the difference. We can tell the difference. We can still know, you know, I like the yellow rose better than I like that other thing. But in the end, it doesn't matter. I'm not, you know, predicating my happiness on pleasant or unpleasant, but there'll still be that sense of looking at this pleasant might be in the mind and looking at that unpleasant might come up. But I don't have to build my life around it. Um, From Thich Nhat Hanh. When we are obsessed by desire for sense pleasures, we lose our freedom. This was taught by the Buddha. But it's very important to distinguish between indulging in sense pleasures and the joy and happiness that we experience when we are mindful and at peace. Attachment to sense pleasures, that kind of looking for happiness, brings about suffering and entanglement, both in the present moment and the future, for ourselves and others. The joy and happiness of a peaceful mind brings neither suffering nor attachment in the present or in the future, for ourselves or for others. That's actually a very good uh, kind of guideline. If you can't tell, you know, am I just appreciating or is there a little bit clinging going on? And then we try to rationalize to ourselves, you know. (laughs) Rationalizing, you can't ever trust that. But we can tell when we're just with mindfulness watching the experience if it starts to feel entangled. If it starts to get complicated, when you're saying complexification starts happening, you know, we're concocting all kinds of stuff, good chance, really good chance, there's some craving for pleasant or avoiding of the unpleasant going on. So this is something we can really explore on retreat here. It's something I love about retreat, the, simpler, the simplification of life here. And you've all been here now, what, like nine or ten days? You probably know to the minute. And um, 
a little bit more here. You know, the, the things of your daily life are a little bit farther away. And the stuff that goes on here starts to seem bigger and bigger, doesn't it? So when some small thing that in, in your daily life you go, that's no big deal. And here the mind is like, oh, I don't like that. I do like that. It's really huge. You can really notice it more. The magnification of concentration. And as Utejaniya says, the exaggeration of the kalesha. You put those two things together, and what have you got? Yogi mind. Ah, it can't be like this. I've got to have a different toothpaste or I'll die. You know? <laughs> Yogi mind. So anyway, we can really explore here. Really get interested in looking. Is it true? What decisions, the little decisions that the mind makes as, as you go through the day here, Don't take it personally. Remember, this is just nature. This is the Buddha describing how these habits get set up, how when we're not aware, there's the resistance and the wanting. Don't take it personally. This is going on in all of us here in this human race. You're in the laboratory to explore it. And this is what's so beautiful to me about, again, it's just nature. With a steady seeing of mindfulness, you have to figure it out. Just be willing to bring the simplicity, the honesty of mindfulness to the whole process, and you have 10 million chances a day to do that. Then the wisdom comes by itself. It starts to see by itself, oh, wanting this just complicates. Wanting doesn't make sense. It drops away. It's a huge relief. So explore that here. How fast that movement comes. There's something unpleasant experience, the flash of movement towards the pleasant. So this little example, I think Winnie or someone was talking about this morning, and you know, maybe Winnie, in terms of intention, it's the intention that comes up where to go sit when you're in the dining room. Just notice. Notice you walk in and it's like, they sit there, there's a little sense of unpleasantness, so you want to move. Somebody's too close. The light's too bright. It's too noisy. You don't like this. Just why do you go sit where you sit? Why do you choose which cup? Although now they're all the same, you know, but still, you choose one, you know. Why do you choose how much food to take? How do you choose where to sit in the hall? Whether to walk, what kind of tea to have, little decisions. I don't mean analyze it and get into like some crazy kind of doubt, you know. Oh no, I can't, should I have peppermint, should I have chamomile, oh no. (laughs) I don't mean that, okay. Just be natural, be normal, but watch what comes up, and how often the movement to wanting something comes when there's just a little bit unpleasant, just a little bit. When you're walking and suddenly there's that sense, oh, it's time to stop walking now. Check it out. What's going on? A lot of the time, just unpleasant or boring, and a thought came up, oh, I could go do something a little more juicy, a little more interesting. And... Just the sense of craving itself, it's a habit, right? But sometimes just the craving itself is experienced as pleasant, as more active. Someone said today, I really loved it because it it moved, for me it showed how we don't understand the neutral, how ignorance to the neutral starts to underlie the mind, this movement, this resistance to unpleasant and going to pleasant. Sometimes as the mind's getting quieter here and people sometimes experience where it's not, it's been really intense, pleasant, unpleasant, or nice, but then it kind of calms down a little. Maybe it's a little dull, maybe not, but things just aren't so vivid. 
Things are present, you're there, but it's, it's heading into neutral zone, which we've talked about before as being maybe calm and we don't notice, but it's... And so this, this friend said today that, oh, noticing that and noticing how suddenly the mind like wanted to want, just to look, just, have you seen, just want to look at something. And the wanting itself brought a sense of vividness, of a little bit more intensity that was experienced, you know, kind of as better. You could see the wanting itself was enough to give this sense of vivid. Basically, it's a sense of vivid me, right? <laughs> That's often what's missing in the neutral. It's just this, this, but, oh, I want to look. And it's experienced as being almost more alive, more pleasant or something. This is when, really, we can see how we get caught in samsara. So notice that, the sense of how... The, the wanting and the aversion is so normal and natural that that's what feels at ease. So here, again, when you notice the wanting, the clinging, even just little things, I want to go sit in that seat there, but somebody's in it. Or I want to go sit in that seat, it's empty. Just stand a minute and feel the wanting. This is so not our comfort zone. We're so, you know, habituated. Wanting comes up, you act on it. You get the thing you want and everything's copacetic. What's the problem? Why should I sit there and feel wanting when I can hurry and go sit there and get the seat I want and be happy? Right? That's how we live our lives. So stand there. Just feel the wanting. Just feel it. Notice how it's just sensation coming and going, thoughts in the mind. And eventually it will go away. I promise. Because everything goes away. Keep paying attention after it goes away and just notice. And it may not be true. Don't believe me. But notice if there's a sense of ease. The wanting is gone. Oh, that's what we really wanted. That sense of ease. We thought that seat was going to do it or that tennis match was going to do it or the chamomile tea was going to do it or a state of bliss was going to do it. But really, it's the wanting and the resistance that's creating the suffering, not getting or not getting the experience that's happening, not arranging the world so it does what we want, because that's impossible. But it's so inculcated that we go with the wanting and we move away from the unpleasant that the thought of even just staying with it without acting on it, this is where, where often Buddhism gets the um, the rap of being is just passive. You just sit there and don't do anything about anything, you know, and let everybody roll over you like a steamroller. But it's not that. But that's why we're here on retreat. It doesn't matter if you don't get the seat you want. It's, this is not making a choice to do something to help your family, and if you don't do it, they're going to be hungry. This is just little simple stuff, you know. You don't get what you want here. You have another chance the next moment. Explore how the mind works. Explore just resting at ease with the unpleasant. As Joko Beck says, can I find in myself a willingness to rest in this confusing and painful situation? Can I just find a willingness just for a moment to rest in this confusing and painful situation? It's like this now. And what starts to shift is from being so... um, tuned into the experience, the object, and the me and the object, me and the experience is the source of suffering, the source of happiness. The interest really starts to shift to uh, an appreciation for the mindful awareness itself, 
almost like for me, it almost turns into like a shift of refuge from me organizing the world, getting what I want, making it all okay. Okay, it's like this now. That's why I use Samedo's line like that all the time. Whatever's going on, I'm caught up, it's difficult, I'm wanting, I'm happy, but the mind is, it could be like this, it could be like that. I can feel the sense of struggle. Oh, it's like this now. Just fullness of presence, collected attention, just dropping into the whole experience without needing to name it or anything. The resistance doesn't arise and leaning into something else doesn't arise. It's just this. And there's just a chance to taste ever so briefly that, that sense of peace, of ease, of non-clinging, of non-resistance, which is what the Buddha is talking about in terms of the direction that takes us to freedom. So I'll read the last part. So in the case of a well-taught noble disciple, O monks, When touched by a painful feeling, she will not worry or grieve or lament. She will not beat her breast and weep nor be distraught. It is one kind of feeling she experiences, a bodily unpleasant feeling, but not a second mental unpleasant feeling, as if pierced by a dart, but not here pierced by a second dart. So... The well-taught disciple experiences one single feeling, a bodily one. In other words, you experience unpleasant or pleasant, and there's nothing created around it. It's just this, just this. So then having been touched by that painful feeling, he does not resist and resent it. So no underlying habit of resistance to the unpleasant comes to be. Because there's no habit of resistance to the unpleasant, there's not the need, the urge to go look for a sense pleasure to avoid the unpleasant. There's no need to do that. So it doesn't come into the mind. And so there's no habit of craving and lusting after sense pleasure in the mind. It's just, it's just this now. He knows, according to facts, the arising and ending of those feelings, just that fleetingness, the coming and going. He knows the gratification, the danger, and the escape connected with those feelings. So in one who knows thus, no underlying tendency to ignorance as to neutral comes to lie in the mind either. So he he feels it as one who is not fettered by the feelings. So still feeling all the feeling tones. That doesn't change. Such a one, O bhikkhus, is called a well-taught noble disciple who is not fettered by birth, by old age, by death, by sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. She is not fettered to this suffering. This I declare. Doesn't mean she or he is not living a life. As uh, Sumedho says, life still goes on. But we explore, as Mingyur Rinpoche says, we, we start to recognize a sense of peace that arises from the stability of an awareness which is not dependent on the presence or absence of pleasant or unpleasant feeling. The stability of awareness doesn't care. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. 
and we bring this sense of steady awareness to our normal everyday experience. But this difference of the steady awareness rather than getting lost in reaction to each experience changes the whole thing. So I'll just give one example from a good, a good friend of mine. Um, she, she's given me permission to use this story. Or her family. Hi, if you're listening, she always listens to the podcast. So her family lived uh, quite a few, uh, quite some distance away. I've known her for many, many years, and she'd fly to visit her family a couple of times a year. And as is often the case, going back home to visit family, it was often difficult, difficult relation with the parents and with the sister. Um, and every time she'd go, she said she'd go and really, you know, make a, a vow, I'm really going to be meeting them with loving kindness this time. I'm really not going to get reactive this time. Have you ever tried that? I'm going to go home and just be, you know, the bodhisattva of compassion and you step in the door and it's all over. So, <laughs> so she said, you know, she'd always do that and then get home and get involved with the sister, with the mother, whatever. So this was just a couple of years ago after a retreat where we been really the retreat had been particularly looking at the attitude in the mind and just really strengthening the steadiness of awareness of whatever was coming without trying to change, just really seeing. So this refuge in the mindfulness, in the awareness, rather than reacting to what's happening. So she was doing the same at the airport, getting ready to get on the plane and starting to say, okay, I'm I'm just going to cultivate mindfulness. And then she'll, wait a minute, let me just bring awareness to what's actually happening. So she's bringing awareness, doing some walking meditation in the airport, sitting on the plane, and she said, oh, actually I'm noticing as I'm going home that I'm actually feeling rather, I don't remember the exact specifics, but kind of resentful, a little, you know, getting a little ready to engage in battle, kind of, you know, I was trying to pretend I had metta, but there was this subterranean difficulty going on. So she just brought awareness to all of that instead of trying to make it be different, you know, trying to move to the pleasant. So as she walked, she said, it turned out to be the best visit she'd had. Because by the steady awareness, bring to the, all those experiences, there wasn't the sense of her being that or being stuck to it. The way I say the Velcro was off. She was watching the sense of resistance or fear or judgment coming up, but seeing it coming and going without landing in it, she didn't act from it or speak from it. And was actually, the, the visit was completely different from how other ones had been. Same world, same life, same, same pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings, but taking refuge in the steady awareness, the wisdom comes that we don't need to react from them because that's not the path of happiness. But it doesn't mean we shut the world out. So I just want to end with a little story. I read not a story, but a description of the Dalai Lama one time. Because just to show this isn't about not caring or somehow not feeling or not being open to the suffering and the joy in the world. It actually allows for much more sensitivity and open-heartedness and connectedness when we're not taking it personally, when we're not needing to go to the pleasant to make everything okay. So someone was uh, asking the Dalai Lama, you know, everybody who comes, all the Tibetans who come out of Tibet always go to meet him. So how many stories, how many people has he been face-to-face with telling him horrific stories 
of loss and death and imprisonment and torture and destruction. I mean, really face-to-face, even reading it, I can hardly bear it, you know. But can you imagine being face-to-face with, I don't know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people? And, and he said, how does he do it? Because if you look at him, he's, he said, how is he not continually overwhelmed? And he said, and when he's with someone and they're talking, he's totally with them. And if you've ever seen him, you can see that. He's completely present with somebody, like you're the most important person in the world in that moment, very responsive. And if you've ever seen him anywhere, you also know he's very, he, a sense of lightness, a sense of joy, a sense of real love of the Dharma, and this compassion, right? Well, he's Mr. Compassion, the 16th, you know, <laughs> he's had practice. But anyway, um, so he's totally present when somebody's telling him, a story of great suffering. He can be crying, really feeling with it. Then they leave, and he's done, and he turns to the next person, and it's maybe they're laughing, and the next minute he's laughing like a small child, and people say, how can you do it? It's because he's so present. But there's no kind of him resisting the unpleasant or needing something pleasant. It's just, just like that, nothing created around it. It just kind of moves through turns to the next one, totally there. And if that's joy and happiness and childlike, totally there. Not holding to that either, it moves through. Turn to the next, if that's suffering, totally there. This is life. When we're not under the thrall of these habits, if we see just this pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, these little things, it seems like so nothing. But if we explore it, it has immense potential to free us from these habits that keep us confused and struggling when we don't recognize them. The power of accurate recognition is immense to free us from suffering. So thank you for your kind attention. Let's just sit quietly a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.